Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Longview, Washington, Friday, December 20th, 1985. The Daily News lead with the headline, Congress bogs down in battle to cut federal deficit. The front page was filled with stories about property tax increases, economic growth, politics, and at the very bottom, a story about the winter solstice. You'd be forgiven for thinking that there were no crimes from reading this. But if you delve deeper through the pages of advertising, and light-hearted stories, there were a few hidden in there. Page 11, the area news section, contained headlines on the latest news in the local theater redevelopment, and the local crab fishermen's decreasing catches. Then, tucked right near the bottom of the page, Ethel Couple disappears. The short article reads as follows. The Lewis County Sheriff's Office is investigating the disappearance of Ethel Couple on Thursday. Foul play is suspected. Missing our 81-year-old Edward Morin. According to the undersheriff Randy Hamilton, the Morins, who live in the 2000 block of Highway 12 near Ethel in southern Lewis County, were supposed to host a potluck at their home at noon on Thursday for about 20 people. But the guests arrived to discover the Morins missing. Hamilton said friends and family searched for the Morins for several hours, 
then called the sheriff's office about 6 p.m. He said the Morin's 1969 Chrysler was found about 7.30 this morning in the Yardbirds parking lot in Shahela's. Quote, Indications inside the residence show that there are suspicions of unusual circumstances, which are not being released at this time, said Hamilton. Quote, We are looking at this case as possible foul play involved due to the fact the car has been abandoned. Edward Morin was born on the 11th of June 1904 in Washington. Edward married Minnie when he was 57 after caring for his ailing mother until she passed away in her 90s. We've researched but have been unable to find out any more information about Edward's family and his early life. Minnie was born Wilhelmina Mary Kerps on the 5th of December 1901 in Roseland, Nebraska. Her parents were John Kerps and Elizabeth Fritz from Iowa. The couple married and had 15 children, all of whom had a long life, apart from their last child, Maria, who passed away at just one month old. John's parents, originally both from Luxembourg, were early settlers in the United States, arriving in the late 1850s. John was a farmer starting at an early age. The 1880 census shows him working on a farm aged 16. The 1900 census, just 20 years later, John owned his own farm and house with no mortgage. In 1923, aged just 23, Minnie married her first husband, Elias George Hadler, known as Louis. Louis was born in Germany, but the family moved to the United States with him when he was a baby. The couple had their first child, Joseph, a son, on the 26th of March 1925, but he sadly passed away just six days later. Their second son, Delbert, was born on the 24th of June 1926. Unfortunately, his twin, Gilbert, was stillborn. According to the census reports, Minnie and Louis then went on to have another two sons and a daughter. At the age of 55, Minnie was content. Her children were getting older, her husband was a self-employed off-bearer, and they owned their own home. They were looking forward to retirement and growing old together. But that was all to change. On the 22nd of March 1957, Minnie's mother passed away at the grand old age of 89, followed just five days later by her brother Nicholas, who had a heart attack. The following February, in 1958, her brother John passed away too. And then on the 28th of November in the same year, her husband Louis passed away at just 59 years old. Minnie was left all alone. She had no job. Her children had grown up. What was she going to do now? On May 16, 1961, Ed Maurin and Minnie Kerpas married. They lived modestly, but were comfortable. They had money in the bank and a large amount of land. They were going to enjoy their retirement, and that's exactly what they did until December 19, 1985. So what did happen on that day? The day started off like any other. The couple had planned a Christmas gathering for friends. It was potluck, so they didn't have to do all the catering, which made them more relaxed. Around 9.30 a.m., Ed called the Sterling Savings Association Bank and advised the teller, Patricia Hall, that he needed to withdraw $8,500 from his bank account. The couple then went into town 
withdrew the money in $100 bills. Yes, that's right, $8,500, which is around $22,000 today based on inflation. In an article in the Longview Daily News from December 26, 1985, it states, Officials at Shehala's bank said Marin told them he was going to buy a new car and withdrew the cash despite efforts to dissuade him. Guests arrived at their house, excited to meet up with friends and full of Christmas cheer. But there was no answer. They knocked at the door. They shouted for the Marins. They checked the doors and windows. They peeped through the panes to see if they could see anything unusual. But there was nothing. No answer. Nothing to see. Just nothing. Their guests were puzzled. Where were they? Did they forget? Was one of them taken ill? Assuming there was some kind of emergency the couple had to deal with, the guests left. Later that day, worried friends called the couple's daughter-in-law, Shirley, and said that they were concerned. Shirley immediately went round to check on Ed and Minnie, but found the house locked and their car missing. Shirley called her sister-in-law Hazel, Minnie's daughter, to see if she knew where they were. Hazel contacted everyone she knew, but nobody had seen her parents. Hazel and Shirley entered Ed and Minnie's house and went through it looking for clues. They found Minnie's purse in the house and the couple's bank statements were laid out for all to see. Alarmed, Hazel and Shirley reported the couple missing to the Lewis County Sheriff's Department. On Friday the 20th of December 1985 was a typical winter's morning. It was cold, the kind of cold where you breathed out and your breath lingers like a cloud in the air. It was icy and people woke up to their cars covered in a heavy frost, meaning they had to clear their windows before they could drive to work. Police patrolling the Yardbird Mall parking lot became suspicious of a car they saw, which was the same as that of Ed and Minnie Morin. It was parked in the northeast corner of the parking lot. They approached the vehicle and one of the detectives blew warm air onto the window so that he could see inside. In the cold case file clip on this case, an expert said, quote, It was an icy morning. They could not see in the window, and one of the detectives, instead of touching the car and leaving fingerprints, blew warm air onto the glass. Once he did that, he could see that the car was covered in blood, which will probably be burned in his brain for the rest of his life, end quote. ABC News reported that police found a, quote, large amount of bloodstains in the vehicle, end quote, and the, quote, keys were discovered in the ignition, end quote. The trial transcript says, quote, when Detective Glade Austin responded to the scene, there was blood found throughout the front of the car and blood dripping down the outside of the passenger side of the car. There was no bodies, end quote. The vehicle was empty. Ed and Minnie were nowhere to be found. Minnie's children and grandchildren were frantic with worry about the whereabouts of their mother and Ed. After finding the blood in the car, the police increased their resources to find the couple and were following up every lead. During their investigation, they found out the following. One, it seemed implausible that the large cash withdrawal was not connected to the couple's disappearance. Relatives confirmed that 81-year-old Ed was not considering purchasing a new car, 
as he liked to live a modest life. And as far as they all knew, Ed had no plans to replace his 16-year-old Chrysler as it was running well. 2. Minnie's son Dennis had passed their house at 5.30 a.m. on the morning of December the 19th while picking up his son Michael for work and was surprised to see that there were lights on in Ed and Minnie's house. 3. Other witnesses said that they had also seen the lights on in the house as well as unfamiliar vehicles and unknown men outside the house. 4. A neighbor, Nana Pierce, saw a strange car near Ed and Minnie's house and thought that they may be in need of assistance, but the car pulled into the couple's driveway and Nona heard them talking, so assumed everything was fine. 5. Between 8 a.m. and 9 p.m., Lindsay Center, a truck driver, was passing the house and said that he saw two men walking nearby carrying a long object covered with a cloth. He remembered it as he thought at the time it could have been a rifle. 6. Many people said that they saw the green Chrysler driving around on the morning of December the 19th. All said that there were an older couple in the car, and that they were accompanied by one or two younger males. One man said that around 9 a.m. he saw the car on Highway 12 being driven by a young man with an older couple in the back. 7. On Monday the 23rd of December, two witnesses came forward. The Spokane Chronicle said, quote, Two people reported late Monday that they had seen a man on Thursday, about an hour after the money was withdrawn, walking away from the area where the Marin's green 1969 Chrysler was found. The man was described by witnesses as in his 20s or 30s, 5 foot 10 with dark hair, a mustache and beard, wearing a pea green jacket and dark stocking cap, and carrying some type of long gun, particularly concealed with a white cloth, under Sheriff Randy Hamilton said. Other articles give a fuller description of the man, saying it was a white male, late 20s or early 30s, about 5 foot 10 inches, a slender build, fair skin, dark wavy hair, stubble, and a mustache. He was wearing a dark-collared stocking cap, a pea-green army-type jacket, and work boots. The article in the Spokane Chronicle went on to say, The witnesses were driven to Portland, where a police artist drew a composite sketch for use in trying to apprehend a suspect, Hamilton said. Many of the witnesses said that they knew the men. They said they were the Riff brothers, Rick and John Gregory, known as Greg. Tuesday morning was Christmas Eve. A man was driving through a logging area on Stearns Hill Road near Adna, about six miles from where the Chrysler was found. Around 200 feet from the end of a country road, he stopped. There were two bodies lying on the ground alongside the track. They were later confirmed as missing Ed Morin, aged 81, and Minnie Morin, aged 83. Their autopsies, performed later that day, concluded that Ed and Minnie had died from shotgun wounds to their backs. The weapon was a sawn-off 12-gauge shotgun loaded with double-aught buckshot. At his parents' funeral, Dennis Hadala placed a hand on their casket and made a promise. Quote, I will find out who did this. End quote. So who had killed Ed and Minnie, and Why? While there were suspects at the time, there was not enough evidence to convict anybody. People were scared to come forward in case of repercussions after some of the witnesses were threatened. 
and so it would be 26 agonising years before the family would get answers. The police continued to investigate the case, being funded by the couple's son, Dennis, when funding wasn't available. He also hired a private investigator and offered a $10,000 reward for leads that resulted in the arrest of those responsible. New leads and witnesses were followed up over the years. In the early 1990s, Detective David Neeser contacted Rick's ex-wife, Robin, by telephone. She was in prison in Arizona at this time. He introduced himself and said that he needed to speak with her about an old homicide case from Lewis County. Her response? You mean the one where the two old men were killed? A friend of Rick's, Les George, told the police that in October 1984, he asked Rick to go with him to purchase a single-shot 12-gauge shotgun as he wanted some advice. Then in early 1985, he asked Rick to cut about an inch off the barrel for him, which Rick did. George then said he didn't get the shotgun back from Rick until the summer of 1986, and that when Rick returned it, he asked George to put a speedy finish on the gun because he didn't want his fingerprints on it. The police asked if they could see the gun, but George said he left it in a closet at his mother's after finding out it was too short and not legal, and his stepfather had found it and disposed of it in a lake. An ex-girlfriend of Rick came forward and said during an argument in 1986 or 1987 when she threatened to leave, John responded by saying, We've killed once. We can kill again. To which Rick responded, Yeah. Being prime suspects, the police travelled to Alaska in February 1992 to interview Rick. They wrote that he voluntarily gave an interview and provided police with a hair sample as well as fingerprint and palm prints. They asked him about the shotgun that he had cut down for George and he admitted that he had kept it for a couple of weeks and fired it a few times. Rick also said that he used to have a green army fatigue jacket but so did many other people. During the interview he denied that either he or Greg were involved in the murders. Greg was also interviewed and denied the murders before saying, quote, I don't know, I need to think about it, end quote. He then began to cry and the interview was terminated. Greg's fingerprints and hair sample were also obtained. In 2005, Detective Bruce Kimsey took over the investigation into the Morins' murder. He continued to interview witnesses and asked them if they could identify the perpetrators from a photo montage. Many picked out Greg or Rick. Finally, on the 8th of July 2012, the police had enough evidence to make an arrest. With arrest warrant in hand, the police headed to Alaska, where brothers Greg and Rick Reif lived, after moving from Washington in 1987. They were living in King Salmon, a very small, rural community with less than 400 residents. The police quickly located Rick Reif, aged 53, and arrested him. Unfortunately for the Maureen family, his brother Greg had passed away just a week before from a long-standing illness. Rick was extradited back to Washington State in July 2012, ready for trial, and his bail was set at $5 million. Many more witnesses then came forward. With one of the brothers in custody and the other dead, they were not scared anymore to tell the police what they knew. When investigators pursued murder charges against Rife in 2012, 
They also learned he had previously been questioned, but never charged, with the sexual abuse of a young girl during the mid-80s. A few months after Reif's 2012 arrest, prosecutors filed sexual abuse charges against him. On February 22, 2013, Rick Reif faced further charges, this time for sexually abusing a nine-year-old in November 1984, and again on April 28, 1986, when she was 10. He pleaded not guilty to both charges. After four delays, the trial of Rick Reif began in October 2013 and was expected to last six to eight weeks. Rick was standing trial for two counts of first-degree murder, as well as first-degree burglary. Each charge also included special allegations for lack of remorse, deliberate cruelty, and for the victims being elderly and vulnerable. The trial lasted just over six weeks. Over 90 witnesses were called, and the jury deliberated for one and a half days before coming back with their verdict just after 2 p.m. on Monday 18th of November 2013. Rife, age 55, was found guilty for the 1985 kidnapping, robbery, burglary, and murders of Ed and Minnie Morin. On the afternoon of Tuesday, December 3rd, 2013, Lewis County Superior Court was packed with more than 50 people, including dozens of family members wanting to watch the sentencing of Rick Rife. The Chronicle reported that Riff did not speak at the sentencing, but his lawyer said he felt no remorse and would make no apologies for something he did not do. Hazel Oberg, Hadler, two of Minnie's children, who at the time of the trial were about the age of their mother and stepfather at the time of their murders, read statements in court. Dennis said, This will never be forgotten for generations to come. How could anyone be so cruel and act with such malice to shoot two elderly and trusting people in the back and dump them in the forest? Hazel said, It's been very difficult for me to understand how someone could take their lives for the money. She also told the judge that their mother and stepfather had raised all of the children well and had taught them how to work hard and earn a living. Riff was sentenced to 1,234 months in prison, just under 103 years and was ordered to pay more than $25,000 in restitution costs for expenses associated with his extradition, the trial, and funeral costs for Ed and Minnie Morin. Riff's defence attorney, John Crowley, told the judge that his client would be appealing the convictions and the sentence. Less than a year later, in October 2013, Rick was back in the courtroom, this time on trial for the sexual abuse of a young girl in 1984 and again in 1986. According to the court documents, the girl's mother lived with Rick in the 1980s. During this time, the girl suffered psychological and emotional abuse, as well as being sexually abused by him on two occasions. As she stood in the courtroom to give her statement, she said, I am a victim of Rick Riff. He knows that. Nearly 30 years ago, I had a horrible childhood and a horrible life with that man. Him and my mother and his brother were horrible people. But today, I am here as a survivor. I am a survivor of nature, by chance, and most importantly, a survivor of life. End quote. She also said, 
quote, Because of the horrible things this man has done to me and my family as a child, I have lived in fear of his name. That July evening in 2012, when Como 4 News said his name, I froze with terror. Then I cried with joy. He was incarcerated. My life has been a roller coaster since then. End quote. His arrest, then subsequent interviews with investigators, forced the woman to face the pain of her past, inflicted by Riff. Despite his guilty convictions and the evidence against him, Riff maintains his innocence. Quote, How can you even say you're a good person? End quote. The woman said to Riff on Monday, quote, All the child abuse, all the child neglect, domestic violence and the murders, all of that, but worse than that, was that November night in 1984 when you molested me. That night changed my life forever. But guess what? You didn't win. End quote. The woman spoke for five minutes. Rick Riff stared down at the table in front of him for the whole time. Lewis County Superior Court Judge Nelson Hunt sentenced Rift to an additional six years and three months in prison, which will run concurrently with his murder sentence. In 2015, Rick Rife appealed his convictions for first-degree murder, first-degree kidnapping, first-degree robbery, and first-degree burglary. The unpublished opinion was filed with the Washington State Court of Appeals, Division 2, on November the 10th, 2015. Rife claimed that the trial court abused its discretion in the following ways. 1. Excluding Dr. Renitz's testimony. The doctor was a specialist on the unreliability of witness identification and memory. It was concluded that no expert opinion was required if the issue is a matter of common knowledge that a layperson could easily understand. Additionally, Rick had failed to prove that this person was in fact qualified as an expert in the matter. 2. By admitting two composite sketches of Rife, these sketches were included for illustrative purposes. Rick claimed that they violated his 6th and 14th Amendment rights and was prejudicial. However, he later waived his objection to their inclusion, so this argument failed. 3. By including Rife's brother's statement about killing before as an adoptive mission, Rick claimed that the statement was prejudicial and that the trial court violated his state and his federal constitutional rights. It was concluded that the inclusion of Greg's statements was not unfair and that normally if someone stated, we've killed once, we can kill again, and you had no idea what they were talking about, you wouldn't reply, yeah, with a smirk on your face. 4. By including Rife's ex-wife's question to police, Rick argued that the statement by his ex-wife, who exclaimed, quote, you mean the one where the two old people were killed, was hearsay and should not have been allowed as evidence. It was concluded that this statement was not hearsay. 5. Did not allow Rife to improperly impeach witness Pierce with her prior inconsistent statement. The appeal document states, quote, Pierce, the Morin's neighbor, testified that she first spoke to Detective Bennett on December 20, 1985, and that a man who matched Rife's description came to her home 
on December 18, 1985. According to Detective Bennett's 1985 police report, Pierce stated that a person in an older red Ford pickup truck parked outside her home, knocked on her door, asked if her husband was home, and then asked for gas. She described the person as six feet tall, approximately 30 years old, 170 to 175 pounds, with dark brown hair, a mustache, and wearing blue jeans, a plaid shirt, and a blue jean jacket. In June 2012, Pierce gave a record statement to Detective Kimsey, where she identified Rife as the man she saw on December 18, 1985, from a photo montage, but expressed doubt and concern about her identification. During direct examination at trial, Pierce testified that a man knocked on her door on December 18, 1985. She described the man as probably maybe five foot nine and in his mid to late 20s with a medium build and dark hair and wearing jeans and a blue jean jacket. The prosecutor showed her a photograph that Detective Kimsey had shown her in June 2012, on which were written the words, looks the most like the person you saw on December 18, 1985. The prosecutor then asked her, is your testimony today that the individual in this photograph that you selected out is absolutely 100% the person you saw on your front porch that day? She responded, yes, I believe with all my heart, yes, it is. Reif moved to admit Detective Bennett's 1985 report and the transcript of Pierce's 2012 record to Detective Kimsey and then sought to impeach her with these statements. The state objected to the admission of either document as substantive evidence under ER 613B and to Reif's impeaching Pierce with the summary in Detective Bennett's 1985 police report because it was not her actual statement. The trial court agreed with the state, denied the admission of both documents, and precluded Rife's counsel from using Detective Bennett's 1985 police report to impeach her. It was concluded that the trial court did not abuse its discretion. Rife also claimed that his right to due process was violated, and that the trial court abused its discretion when it denied Rife's motion for mistrial for the state's alleged failure to disclose information about a witness plea agreement. It was concluded that the trial court acted in the proper manner in these instances. Finally, Rife claimed prosecutorial misconduct, cumulative constitutional error. Again, these claims were denied, and his convictions were upheld. So, Rick Riff remains in prison, and will do so for the rest of his life. Why did him and Greg kill Ed and Minnie Morin? Some said that they needed the money for cocaine. But why Ed and Minnie? Were they just an easy target due to their age? It is not believed that the brothers knew the couple. I guess we will never know.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.